global health and public health crises outbreaks, they exacerbate existing conflict. It really opened my eyes to deconstructing how uh, how development can often charade as neo-imperialism. Thinking Through is a podcast to discuss power dynamics, conflict transformation, international development, post-development, the growth, social, political, and economic systems affecting people's lives with Leopoldine Geronimo. The context in which countries differ their capability response to an outbreak is highly dictated by the global health system rules, which places millions of civilians in the global south countries already trapped in ongoing political unrests and economic hardships in vulnerabilities through which their inability to respond poses global security threat. COVID-19 has just proved us all incapable of preventing over 5 million deaths out of beyond 259 million cases by November 23rd, as the worldometers.info report. The problem in between is the increase of internally displaced and refugees who do not necessarily have alternatives to escape from pandemic outbreaks. Until 2020, right in the middle of COVID-19 pandemic, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees indicates that there were 82.4 million people as refugees and internally displaced. 86% of all of them are in developing countries. And alarmingly, 42% are children. I'm joined today with Samantha Lee, who will be coming often to share her research findings and analysis around global health as it relates to security and international development. During the discussions we hold, her concerns are mostly around policy designs and governance in global health, with focus on the impacts of such decisions made at the top to the people on the ground who are constantly in need of accessible vaccines, testing kits, and locally applicable containment measures. Therefore, her arguments advocate for prevention as the best and cheapest solution for global health crisis. Samantha, welcome. And thank you for making the time in such a busy schedule. It didn't take too much, uh, too much finagling. I, I love talking about global health. So it's, um, you know, I mean, this is, this is hopefully, this is a dream job. So <laughs> I love, I love talking about it. That's good to know. I feel privileged to host you today. Why don't you enlighten me to how you ended up in this course? Yeah, sure. So I started out in university uh, studying pre-med. I was originally a molecular biology student, but um, my first job internship in university, I was working in disease surveillance in North Texas. So um, I was working specifically with the yearly uh, outbreaks of West Nile. However, the year that I started there was 2016, which happened to be the same year that Zika was making headlines. And I got a firsthand experience in being able to witness disease surveillance and response to a novel virus that uh, everybody was very worried about. And I, I really loved being able to be out into the field. And I really loved uh, seeing that my actions had direct uh, impacts on communities that I grew up in. And so after I 
started with that position, I then really uh, felt compelled to shift my focus. And so I shifted majors, switched majors to uh, public health. And I graduated in 2019 from the University of Texas at Dallas. I was still working at the same organization that was conducting uh, the yearly disease surveillance. And then in uh, the fall of 2019, after I graduated, I left for uh, the Peace Corps. I served in the Kingdom of Eswatini, um, uh, specifically with HIV education, stigma, and supply chain operations. After I was placed in my permanent site, however, uh, that, that's when COVID started again making headlines. And unfortunately, I was evacuated due to the due to the pandemic. There was a global evacuation notice, and um, that really reinvigorated my passion for pandemic preparedness, specifically um, and global health security. Um, I often say that. COVID kind of created a chip on my shoulder. And so that's that's what's brought me to to Heller and uh, hopefully is uh, the next step on a, in a long career of global health security and public health. Let's start by grasping your understanding on how does the global health system work? Well, um, I would say that right now it's really undergoing a lot of change, but prior to COVID, um, it's largely been fragmented. So in the U.S., uh, at the local level, and I would imagine in many countries as well, I saw this in Eswatini, at the local level, um, public health is largely up to funding. And in the U.S., it's at the county level. Um, and so it's it's very, um, it, it varies quite uh, quite a bit as to what public health activities are occurring in any location, specifically in the United States? Um, at the state level, you have more of a more of a of a hierarchy hierarchical framework. You have the Department of Health and Human Services, um, and uh, at the national level, you have the CDC under the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, in other countries, you'll have ministries of health. Um, however, specifically for a pandemic response, outbreak response, we have a lot of um, specified frameworks at at the international level. So for example, the World Health Organization has the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, GORN. And uh, we also have the International Association of National Public Health Institutes. Um, And so we have have different, uh, a lot of different organizations that uh, view pandemic preparedness and response as important, but it's, um, I I would say that right now, after COVID showed a lot of our vulnerabilities, uh, it's largely in flux, and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if um, it continues to change. Looking at the stakeholders at play, how would you discuss the roles in the relationship between global institutions, the private sector, international government agencies, and local entities? Right. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, The private sector, I would say, largely blends into the implementation of of response. And often uh, they are coordinating with government officials, uh, the biggest one, of course, being the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. And um, they are, I know Bill Gates has specifically taken on pandemic preparedness in recent years as a, as a, almost a pet project 
of his. And I think that the um, that the the role of private industry is also being uh, adapted currently. Uh, I think that private industry can really fill the gaps that overall um, government can't really uh, anticipate or doesn't have the logistical agility for uh, due to uh, bureaucracy. Additionally, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a, a return to basics because of the, of the fact that um, lockdowns and border closures, you know, uh, large uh, government-initiated response tactics aren't, re- aren't politically viable long-term. So um, both local government and private entities can uh, start to fill in the gaps, specifically with community engagement and also expanding the public health workforce. I think that the, uh, that the private sector has, has a strong capability of hiring and uh, increasing the spread of, of where public health workers are able to uh, uh, work, where they're able to provide services. Um, and this is uh, separate from the healthcare field. The healthcare field itself also is, um, you know, has both private and public entities, and uh, as well with the with the current uh, private entities uh, in the U.S. healthcare system. And I say system with a with quotation marks uh, okay. because it is not really a, a true system uh, that again has a large private entity. Um, uh, presence with non- uh, many hospitals being nonprofits, many um, many community uh, health centers being nonprofits um, and receiving public funding, but they're not they're not public clinics necessarily. We do have public clinics, but it's not to the extent of say other countries that have. Uh, centralized ministries of health. How do advanced economies and strong international bodies dictate the rules of engagement in global health sector? Let's look at their influence in the national health policies and, and plans of economic weak states. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. On um and truly, I think that um, not just in Eswatini, but in in a lot of uh, the global south, the um, U.S. government is the largest government donor to capacity building in infectious disease response globally. And so this funding usually waxes and wanes and and spikes in funding to corresponding disease events. And so that really brings into question the power dynamics of the U.S. government on these smaller countries that um, are using U.S. aid funding, um, PEPFAR funding, et cetera, because there is a lot of power in deciding what disease event is worth funding a response to. In Eswatini specifically, there is a larger dynamic uh, with the fact that the that Eswatini does not have uh, uh, diplomatic ties with the country of China. They still recognize Taiwan's sovereignty. Also impacts how uh, or the development of, of, for example, infrastructure. Road infrastructure is very important to um, the ability to get out uh, vaccines and treatment and the supply chain of uh, pharmaceuticals in a country. And China has been very, uh, very active in developing infrastructure in multiple African countries, uh, specifically roads. And 
because of Eswatini's continued ties to Taiwan that have put them at a disadvantage with um with being able to develop their roads, their highways. I think that that's a really important important aspect of who has the political power. Um, and uh, I, I, again, we, we see the U.S. waning in many ways about political power and China really surging ahead, especially in recent years. Well, I know we the question was about the big powers, the, the private yes. sectors, but I'm, I'm trying to link this power dynamics to the that civilian or citizen down there how did you see that all these dynamics affect them no that's a that's a good question i'm thinking about how to word it i mean in my community what i saw um, i lived in labombo uh, which is in uh which is the eastern province it's uh low land largely flat and has very hot summers um and in my community i um i saw that Often they were at the at the whims of largely NGOs and the EU. Those were the those were the main sponsors of projects in my community. Of course, besides the U.S. government by sending a Peace Corps volunteer there. Um, but uh, World Vision, for example, was very instrumental in my community. Um, They were building uh, uh, counseling centers for um, for young children to be able to talk about sexual abuse, for example. And uh, the EU was uh, was largely responsible for a for a latrine, a pit latrine project in my community. And it 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 always felt as though it was often these outside powers coming into communities and dictating to them what they thought was the was was the better um, was the better program again unfortunately I was only there for six months and largely I feel as though my my um, my placement in that community also perpetuates that same cycle but um, it really opened my eyes to deconstructing how uh, how development can often charade as neo-imperialism okay um l- Let's then have an overall understanding. How does a global health crisis pose a security threat? Uh, the first um, more obvious way when we talk about global health as a security threat is we think about bioweapons. So, for example, an arms control expert, Graham Allison, is quoted as saying that terrorists are more likely to be able to obtain and use biological weapons than nuclear weapons. But others disagree. Uh, they're... There has not been, um, it, it, it's really believed that current environmental, uh, environmental states don't really allow for a large-scale biological weapon attack. However, um, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't current uh, defense mechanisms against it. The Department of Defense, USAMRID, um, and multiple, uh, multiple government agencies in the U.S. view uh, pandemics as and biological weapons as, a, as an existential threat um, to U.S. citizens. Um, additionally, besides manufactured bioweapons, uh, just generally, 
global health and public health crises outbreaks, they exacerbate existing conflict. So I'm thinking about the 2018 Ebola outbreak in North Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where ADF attacked civilians and healthcare workers. And that often, that, that really, um, interrupted the ability to respond to the outbreak and it created heightened tensions between the uh, rebel forces and the central government. Um, outbreaks also place already vulnerable populations into crisis, uh, cholera outbreaks and refugee camps. As, as you mentioned, the Swazis who are, who are going into Mozambique, they, um, they are bringing their own, um, their own public health concerns with them because of, uh, Eswatini's, uh, HIV crisis that is still be, that's still being addressed. Um, and so these, these outbreaks, uh, impact vulnerable populations. Internally displaced persons, uh, are at a, an increased risk for, um, both infectious disease, uh, malnutrition, and uh, a number of other uh, health health issues. The uh, outbreaks also uh, have intense economic impacts. So the initial SARS outbreak had an estimated $30 billion in economic losses. Um, the largest uh, Ebola outbreak in the world, 2014-2015, in uh, West Africa had an estimated $53 billion in losses. And COVID in 2020 alone has cost the U.S., only the U.S., in our, about $16 trillion. And it's, it's, that number is only, only increasing as we go through our, what is it, third or fourth wave now. And so outbreaks have a, have really a multi-pronged impacts on, on, on a country. It, it exacerbates its conflicts. Uh, it in, impacts uh, the most vulnerable populations uh, dis, uh, disproportionately compared to the population at large. It has multiple economic impacts. Acknowledging the overall differentiation and response capacity of the of many countries, both in the North and Global South, how best global health as a security threat can be addressed? Well, largely. Um, what every outbreak has shown us, whether that's HIV, whether that is H1N1, uh, avian flu, all of these outbreaks have shown us that prevention is more effective and overall less expensive than uh, response can be. Um, it, it's really important that prevention is incorporated into policies as we, as we move forward and out of COVID. Um, COVID has really shown that there are so many weaknesses in pandemic preparedness. I think as we move forward into a post-COVID world, we need to look at um, how global funding mechanisms are structured, uh, empowering local leadership, but also um, increasing transparency between countries in their research. For example, um, it would be uh, one of the calls for an international treaty right now is that uh, it would increase the transparency on significant research findings and also an equitable distribution of pathogens uh, to, in, um, to encourage multilateral vaccine development. Additionally, I, I think 
again, that prevention can be enhanced through uh, surveillance uh, for these novel viruses. There have already been multiple mapping uh, uh, mapping studies of spillover risks. So when I'm talking about spillover risks, I'm talking about uh, zoonotic uh, viruses, viruses that are uh, that originate in animal populations. These are currently considered the the highest threat to sustained uh, viral outbreaks in human populations. And these spillover risks uh, um, are coordinated by, are, are largely mapped along with climate change uh, areas, uh, habitat loss, um, general globalization, trade routes. Basically, where are human beings having an increased, uh, having increased interactions with animal populations, and this uh, facilitates uh, more spillover risk. If we if we have these maps, we have more of an opportunity, therefore, to manage and mitigate these risks before the spillover happens. Or in some as some other companies, um, Global Viral is one that I'm thinking of, but they've recently rebranded since COVID. There's also a push for identifying these novel viruses and creating vaccines for these novel viruses before they even find their way into uh, into the human uh, human body. And so that I think I don't think we're there yet, and we'll have to see how funding uh, funding waxes and wanes as people get tired of of the pandemic. Let's narrow it down to three realities. The United States, India, and in Swatini contexts. What discussions would you surface from these three countries looking at the power dynamics between them? Bear in mind that these three, I just pointed them as an example. I, I want to put those three countries in the context of COVAX. So COVAX is the um, vaccine sharing program. Um, it was spearheaded predominantly by wealthy countries, including the U.S. And um, more recently, India has started to uh, join the COVAX sharing efforts. Uh, India is um, the third largest pharmaceutical industry in the world. It's a rapidly developing country and a rapidly industrializing country. And it is also the largest provider of generic medicines globally. And so... Um, India, uh, most recently, I think it was late October, that they uh, were able to start restart shipments of um, to both COVAX, COVAX and their uh, neighbors. Um, and so it, I think those three countries, the U.S., India, and Eswatini, present a, a really interesting, re- really interesting uh, demonstration of three different actors in this response. The U.S. is off is very much almost a bureaucratic head of these operations, uh, or at least uh, acts as a, a bureaucratic head. India is this rapidly uh, rapidly industrializing country that is um, that is starting to gain headway and gain um, uh, gain more of of uh, almost a leadership aspect in Covax, and Eswatini is uh, currently. Dealing or is currently a, a recipient of COVAX uh, vaccines, but is also dealing with the corresponding HIV and tuberculosis crises that are that have been plaguing the country for um, multiple decades now. And I think that it it shows um, how uh, how development is 
um, how development is really playing out across these multiple regions. And um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting uh, case study between the three of them. What would be your takeaway with this whole global health policy system in a way that, hey, look, you have mentioned prevention here, but let's be realistic and start working on three key solutions. Right. Um, I think overall um, that global health is an infrastructure issue. And infrastructure is not sexy. It's not, it's um, the only reason why it, uh, global health security is uh, in the headlines right now is because of COVID. Um, but it's been around and been talked about for, uh, for a while, for many years. Um, and therefore, when, when we're thinking about solutions going forward, uh, we really need to inc- um, incorporate global health prevention measures into general infrastructure. And so um, I think those three solutions would, one, be um, increased surveillance measures um, using those, again, mapping of, the, of spillover risks. So targeting surveillance in areas where, where there are high risk of spillover from animal populations to human populations. Second, there needs to be a, an agreement on um, needs to be an agreement on transparency for uh, research findings and um, current outbreak uh, identifications. Uh, for example, the World Health Organization being able to uh, independently verify the COVID presence in China was uh, a big hurdle in being able to um, to respond quickly. And those those days that were lost uh, have have huge impacts on in how the uh, and how an outbreak is is uh, affected and lastly um, there needs to be more equity in sharing of pathogens for vaccine development overall the ability to be able to develop vaccines in multiple areas through multiple companies is what's really going to be able to get um, to get a, a an effective treatment out quickly, rather than um, one country holding or one research institution holding a lot of the pathogens, um, or one co- one company being able to develop the vaccine, patent it, and not share it. Thank you, Samantha, for sharing your understanding in the power dynamics and securitization of global health. We'll be sharing links for more information of the data that we have used in this episode. I'll see you soon. Thinking Through is a podcast to discuss power dynamics, conflict transformation, international development, post-development, the growth, social, political, and economic systems.